five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the SpaceQ Podcast. On April 12th, Western University held its annual Space Day. One of the more interesting events was a panel discussion on space resources, the next frontier in exploration. The discussion was moderated by Melissa Battler, a Western grad and current chief science officer at Mission Control Space Services. The panelists was a diverse group, including Michael Winter, a lawyer and a market conduct investigator at London Life Insurance Company, Holly Johnson, the president's business manager, MDA, Mike Villeneuve, director, Central Canada Division, the Geological Survey of Canada, Neil Banerjee, the industrial research chair in advanced mineral exploration at Western University, Tim Haltigan, senior mission scientist, Planetary Exploration, Canadian Space Agency, and Charles Niabis, Vice President, Business Development, the Centre for Excellence in Mining Innovation. It was a fascinating discussion on how we'll use resources we find in space to what companies in this area should consider as they execute the longer-term goal of enabling use of these resources. Listen in. Good morning again, and welcome to the first event of Space Day, which is panel discussion on space resources, the next frontier in exploration. As you heard from Oz, my name is Melissa Battler. I'm currently the Chief Science Officer at Mission Control Space Services. Uh, as you've heard, I'm also part of the CPSX family, uh, one of the first PhD students to graduate from the program, so it's good to be back among CPSX family and friends. So I'd like to welcome our panelists today. Uh, they are Neil Banerjee, Industrial Research Chair in Advanced Mineral Exploration, Western University, and they're sitting in random order, so if you can just wave when I say your name. <laughs> That's perfect. Uh, Tim Haltigan, Senior Mission Scientist of Planetary Exploration, Canadian Space Agency. Holly Johnson, President's Business Manager at MDA. Charles Nyabes, Vice President of Business Development, Center for Excellence in Mining Innovation. Mike Villeneuve, Director of the Central Canada Division of the Geological Survey of Canada, and Michael Winter, Market Conduct Investigator, London Life Insurance Company. So the goal of this panel is to have a stimulating discussion about the challenges and opportunities, the prospecting for, extracting, and then using resources from space has, from the early in-situ use of H2O on the Moon or Mars to the multi-decade off mining of PGEs on asteroids. So I can start by providing a little bit more background information about each of our panelists. Then we're gonna reverse this random order that we have. <laughs> each panelist will provide their opening remarks about three to four minutes and they'll, they'll each have a slide. Uh, and then I'll pose the first question, but after that, we're gonna open it up to all of you to ask your questions. So we'll have about 30 minutes for audience questions, so start thinking about those questions now for our distinguished panel. And with that, I am going to start the introductions in alphabetical order <laughs> with Dr. Neil Banerjee. Uh, he's an associate professor in the Department of Earth Sciences at Western, where he holds the NSERC Yamada Gold Inc. Industrial Research Chair in Advanced Mineral Exploration. He's recognized as a leading researcher in modern and ancient hydrothermal systems, biogeochemistry, mineral exploration, particularly in ancient greenstone belts. His group combines fieldwork, 
lab, experimental, and computational approaches to create value over the life of mind cycle. He's training the next generation of Canadian geoscientists to come together as a well-formed team to provide the agile responses needed by industry. In doing so, his trainees learn to develop their own personal feedback loops that have allowed them to evaluate and improve their own progress independently. And as a result, his graduates are now well-placed at top companies, government and academia in Canada and abroad. And I'm proud to say that Neil was one of my PhD co-supervisors as well. <laughs> All right, and next we have uh, Dr. Tim Paltigan. He's the Senior Mission Scientist of Planetary Exploration at the Canadian Space Agency. And in this role, he helps lead Canada's efforts in finding new ways to explore planetary bodies throughout the solar system. He received his PhD from McGill University, where his research revealed similarities in the evolution of ice-rich terrains on Earth and Mars. In 2016, he was in the running to become Canada's next astronaut, and in 27, uh, 2017, had an asteroid named after him, 130066 Tim Haltigan. Very cool. <laughs> Fun fact. Uh, he presently serves as the Canadian Mission Scientist and Operations Manager for OSIRIS-REx, mission that will return a sample from asteroid Bennu back to Earth in 2023. Holly Johnson is the President's Business Manager at MDA. In this role, she is responsible for supporting the President's business activities, both inside and outside the company, as well as leading cross-functional senior project teams to resolve operational issues and new business opportunities. Holly has been with MDA for over 10 years, starting as a university co-op student on the Canadarm project and graduating into a full-time role as a systems engineer with project experience in space robotics, medical robotics, and advanced manufacturing. Prior to her current appointment, Holly also completed a multi-year term as a business development manager in the robotics division. Holly has a Bachelor's of Applied Science degree in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Toronto and is a member of Professional Engineers Ontario. Holly was recognized in 2016 uh, by the receipt of the Northern Lights Aero Foundation Rising Star Award, which honors Canadian women who have made significant contributions to their field. Uh, next, we have Charles Naivis, is Vice President of Business Development and Commercialization at the Centre for Excellence in Mining Innovation. Charles holds an MBA and a Bachelor of Mining Engineering. Charles has worked for the Kid Creek Mining Operations and completed a thesis on the assessment of blast hole stability in deep mines, and has worked in the field of business development and community economic and resource development for the last 18 years. He has experience in the areas of business valuation, commercialization support services, community engagement, business planning, funding application preparations, grant writing, and facilitation of local, provincial, and national community economic development strategies. As an entrepreneur, Charles has started, owned, and operated, and sold online and online businesses. In addition, he has worked with the government of Manitoba, where he gathered knowledge on the intricacies of private-public sector relations, whilst working with the Northern First Nations groups. At the Center for Excellence in Mining Innovation, Charles endeavors to create long-term value for organizations and clients by identifying business development opportunities with both the public and private client segments. Next, Mike Villeneuve began his career as a geochemist at the Geological Survey of Canada in 1987. From 2004 until 2010, he was manager of the GSC's scientific lab network, responsible for the planning and operation of national research laboratories located in GSC offices across Canada. Between 2010 and 2016, he was the program manager for Targeted Geoscience Initiative, a federal government program focused on increasing effectiveness of exploration for deeply buried mineral deposits. He is currently the director of Central Canada Division, responsible for mineral geoscience programming at GSC. 
And finally, Michael Winter was called to the bar uh, in, of Ontario in June 2018 and currently works as a market conduct investigator at London Life, Great West Life, and Canada Life Insurance Companies, investigating allegations of advisor misconduct and negligence. He graduated from Western Law with distinction in June 2017, where he spent a fair amount of time researching topics related to outer space law, including property rights and asteroid resources and the environmental law issues associated with orbital debris. During law school, he worked as a research assistant at the Center for International Govern Governance Innovation, primarily helping senior fellows with their international legal research on climate change and indigenous law. So, fascinating backgrounds, uh, quite a diverse uh, group here, lots of different backgrounds, so hopefully lots of different questions. Um, but for now, we're going to turn it over to the panelists to give their opening remarks in reverse alphabetical order. <laughs> we're starting with Mike Green. Uh, so if you can advance to the next slide there, please. So, I'm going to be talking about the topic that I found. So I'm going to be talking about the topic that first got me interested in better space law. And that's basically the question of what can a country uh, claim in terms of property rights for outer space resources in the international realm. Um, obviously, we do have two countries with national laws already that seem to provide property rights. That is the U.S. and Luxembourg. So the U.S. is uh, Space Resource Exploration and Utilization Act of 2015. And Luxembourg has their law on the uh, utilization and or the exploration and use of space resources. Yeah, that was passed in 2017. So both of these laws do seem to provide, they do create a regulatory regime that allows their citizens to go into outer space and uh, conduct commercial recovery of space resources. And they also seem to provide uh, property rights for those extracted space resources. Uh, I say it seems to provide because there is one condition um, that's written directly in both statutes, and that's that is applicable international obligations on the country itself. Now, one of the questions is what are those international obligations? So, Luxembourg and the US are both party to the Outer Space Treaty, which was entered in force in 1967. So, this is a, an older problem but it's still relevant today because they're expected to comply with Article 2, specifically what I have written up there, which, uh, for those of you who can't see that, it says, outer space, including the moon and other celestial bodies, is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, by means of use or occupation, or by any other means. So, you still can't hear me? Is that better? Okay. So, Article 2 is notorious for being rather ambiguous. You know, it's hard to determine what precisely this is and is not allowing. To provide uh, some context, appropriation, as defined by Black's Law and Tenth Edition, is defined as an exercise of control over property, uh, especially without permission, and taking of possession. So this is a link to Article 2 of property rights. So the question is, what still still question the question still remains is to what extent can a country claim property in outer space? And unfortunately that definition of appropriation doesn't provide the context of what kind of property we're referring to. So we've got to look at the larger article itself to determine that context. And because it's so ambiguous, that leads to multiple meanings. 
the one hand, the property might be taking its context from the subject of the subject's outer space, which could include everything, no matter whether it's in-situated in the actual asteroid or the moon, or free-floating, as references in another celestial body. Alternatively, you might be able to take the context from this claim of sovereignty. Uh, so for a simplistic person, uh, to keep things simple, if we equate a claim of sovereignty to a claim of territory, then the property reference that we can imbue with appropriation is this concept of a territory claim. In which case, we can get that second interpretation that's listed up there, where outer space is not subject to national appropriation by claim of sovereignty, regardless of how that claim of sovereignty occurs by means of use, occupation, or any other means. In which case, that interpretation allows other forms of appropriation for property. The biggest analogy in that circumstance would be to the law of the sea, where states are also not able to claim sovereignty. You know, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, we can still claim property rights for fish that are extracted out of the sea. And that's the, the interpretation that the US and Luxembourg are obviously banking on. So the fact that they you know, obviously introduce international obligations within their national law itself identifies the fact that there is still, still some uncertainty surrounding which interpretation is correct. All right, so then we will uh, thank you for that, Mike. We'll continue with uh, the next bike. Mike, go ahead, please. Go ahead, please. Go. Can, next slide. Can people hear? Can we hear me okay? Yeah, so, uh, so as mentioned, I'm a uh, ge geochronologist, actually, by training. Uh, geoscience is actually uh, my the area I usually talk about, but I'm here uh, representing Natural, uh, Natural Resources Canada uh, to talk a bit more about a policy context and about the uh, Canadian uh, Minerals and Metals Plan, which is a brand new plan that was announced at PDAC this year. Um, that is really the result of collaboration between federal, provincial, and territorial governments. Uh, it's an unprecedented collaboration uh, to ensure that Canada remains at the forefront as a mining nation. And that includes not only in Canada and around the world, but also as uh, resource extraction starts to begin uh, to take shape in space. Um, a big part of this plan was driven by competitiveness um, as uh, the underpinnings of it. We want Canada to be the competitive uh, location for where uh, natural resource um, uh, extraction and use uh, takes place. Um, and uh, But there's flexibility within this plan uh, that really plays into uh, the evolving topics such as mining and space. There's six key pillars of that plan, uh, economic development, competitiveness, um, the uh, advancing participation of indigenous peoples, the environment, science, technology and innovation, which is really where I'm going to focus on today as it pertains to um, uh, space resources, uh, communities and global leadership. Um, Canada is a leader in mining innovation and uh, it has a lot of advantages, uh, highly skilled workforce with expertise in extractive technologies, geoscience, biological sciences, artificial intelligence and space. Uh, we're thinking through this plan of where the industry is going to be 40 or 50 years from now. This is not a short term plan, this is meant as a long term vision. And a couple areas really impact uh, on space, uh, uh, space resource uh, utilization. Uh, mining in northern and remote regions comes to mind, particularly for Canada. We have a vast territory in the north, 
that, like mining in space, there's harsh environments, no infrastructure, uh, or easy access to energy sources. And additionally, as uh, we're discovering, more and more mineral resources are uh, located at greater depths and more complex terrains, necessitating new technologies to extract them efficiently. Similarly, as uh, was just mentioned, uh, offshore is another area that uh, impacts uh, space exploration. And this one, uh, from a regulatory environment, um, as uh, was mentioned, beyond Canada's coastlines and the sea, seabed, regulatory regimes and legal frameworks need to be developed and respected internationally. Once again, similar to space. Uh, Canada has the opportunity to position itself as a leader on new frontiers. And the Canadian Minerals and Metals Plan, or CMMP, or the plan, depending on uh, talks about it, provides a medium uh, to factor these new frontiers into the long-term vision of Canada's mining future. Other economies, such as the US and Luxembourg, Australia, are taking steps to establish themselves as early movers in space mining, attracting capital, talent, and, facili and to facilitate the success of private companies. We need to be there as well. Canada's historical heritage in mining and space go back decades. From Fort Longyear's diamond drill bit technologies in relation to the Apollo program to more current examples such as Atlas Copco's partnership with MDA using Canada Arm sensor technology for mining applications on Earth. We need to utilize this momentum and identify areas of action where our combined efforts can leverage the growing economic and investment potential to create jobs related to the mining and space sectors. We want to ensure that new initiatives, such as the Lunar Exploration Acceleration Program, have this mindset from the start. Adoption of space technology by the mining sector is not new. Canada's space sector has decades of experience in research, development, and innovation, resulting in spin-offs and commercial applications for terrestrial mining. Canada, Canadian mining companies have used space technology and solutions like robotics and earth observation to improve productivity, lower costs, and gather information about our mineral potential. For example, development of rover technology is now being used for 3D underground mapping for inspections of dangerous mining environments. In reverse, Canadian mining companies and the mining supplies and services sector and the exploration uh, supply and services sector can help adapt mining technologies designed for harsh environments for space resource utilization and longer missions. And this also applies to our world-class science. Knowing where to search for resources is a key problem on Earth and equally important in space. The rules that apply for resource extraction on Earth apply equally in space, even if it's water that you're looking for instead of gold. NRCAN is looking to apply our science for frontier exploration in northern Canada, like deep underground or on the moon. As another example, I put forward my own uh, organization, Geological Survey of Canada. Uh, we're looking to uh, deploy our uh, ore system-based modeling science that we've uh, developed over the last 10 years under targeted geoscience initiative uh, into a lunar environment. And the Geodetic Survey of Canada is interested in supporting gravity surveys on the moon. Success will be reliant on collaboration between industries, academia, and governments. We have the potential to enhance Canada's economic competitiveness, attract investment, and demonstrate leadership in emerging industries. By deliberately fostering R&D, innovation, collaboration between sectors, we may be able to realize benefits from reducing costs and risks associated with adopting new technologies. And the vision for CMMP, 
competitive, sustainable, responsible minerals industry that benefits all Canadians is applicable, applicable here on Earth and in space. So thanks very much. Great, thanks Mike, and I'll pass it over to you, Charles, go ahead. Excellent, thank you. Okay, is my mic on? Oh, it's not. Hello? Yeah, just give it a What's the like, is it? All right. Okay, I won't close. Okay, I have no slides, so you have to focus on me. <laughs> so, which will make it for a better conversation, I guess. Uh, you know, first of all, I'd like to just say that I, I am passionate about mining, and, and, and the reason that I'm passionate about mining is, is that mining builds communities. And, you know, if you look around you right now in this building, there's nothing that is standing in this building that is not somehow you know, brought to us by mining. So, so mining to me is like, you know, the god of the industries. You know, it's, it's you know, in the beginning there was mining, right? So there you go. So, so that's how I view mining. Um, and, and I think, you know, for, for space mining, it's, it's, it's one of those areas where it, it is definitely the next frontier, but we recognize that in order for us to push technology to the next place, we need minerals that are unique and maybe even new that can allow us to maybe make things move faster, you know, make things smaller. So, so for, for me, you know, my deep space mining is an area where, you know, we'll discover those interesting metals that can make things better. Um, you know, the other day I was driving with one of my sons and I said, you know, maybe the metals we need to build flying cars are out there somewhere. So, you know, those possibilities. Having said that, uh, my organization is called SEMI. It's the Center for Excellence in Mining Innovation, and we are all about mining what's underneath this asteroid. Uh, it's a fairly big one. Uh, but definitely, you know, we, we recognize that the, the lessons that we are learning about mining this rock, Earth, uh, is are technologies that can be transferable, you know, to, to space mining. And, and in particular, you know, what we, we are right now looking at four main areas of challenges for underground mining. And, you know, we're looking at uh, the intensity of, pro of production. So just to be able to be more effective in how you extract the, the rock material from its, its host uh, with metal in it, we're looking to make that better. And there, there's so many technologies that are coming online for that, you know, including things like mechanical cutting machines. Uh, you know, there's different ways to drill, different ways to blast, you know, different ways to sort the material once you get out of the ground. And so that's number one area is that intensity of, of production. Uh, number two, we're looking at energy, you know, reduction. The amount of energy that we use to mine underground is, is just intense. And if we can find better ways of, of, uh, of getting to that, to that rock uh, that are more energy efficient, you know, we're interested in that. And we recognize that if you're going to go into space where you have limited resources in, in all areas, you have to be as energy uh, responsible as, as humanly possible. So we think that, you know, if you can come and learn from us and see what our challenges are in underground mining, you may then be able to avoid some of the mistakes that we've made over the last couple of hundred years. Um, and then the third area is uh, we're looking at the whole infusion of the digital side of things into mining. Uh, mining has historically been, at least here on Earth, has been known to be very risk-averse. And, you know, part of the story also is that mining is, as a culture, you know, that is so careful that it doesn't want to take any unnecessary risks. So, you know, that's a change management issue for us. And at the end of the day, we, we come to realize that for deep underground mining, it's not, a, it's not even about the technology. 
it's really about people adopting different ways of doing business. So that whole digital infusion piece is not so much a technology issue, but it's an alignment of digital with how people work. And then the last piece that we're working on, which is the fourth area, is in, it's really about the issue and how do you deal with the rejects from mining. And I don't want to say the word waste because I don't believe in waste. Um, you know, it's called a tailing. It's a reject that comes from when you've extracted the valuable component out of the rock. What do you do with that other rejected material? And, you know, just on my way into, um, into London from Sudbury, Ontario yesterday, you know, I got thinking about how, you know, even the, the building material, you need to build that infrastructure on the moon or wherever you're going to build it, can come from some of those residuals that come from the, the metal, the, the metal extraction process. So it's really about not seeing anything that you extract as waste, but looking at it as a resource and then doing something about it. So in the mining industry, we're moving towards that. You know, where we do, we actually don't eliminate this word waste because it doesn't really. It's not real. There's nothing that's waste if you can have, do something with it, right? So you know, with space mining, we think that you know there's maybe some synergies there. So I'm here today because I believe that space mining needs to meet deep underground mining. You know, in the same way, space mining needs to meet with deep sea mining. And my, my colleague from our natural resources, you know, really sort of gave you the summary of just the perspective that we have about mining and where mining is going in the next couple of years. The region of Sudbury, Ontario, is a unique place. You know, within a 50 kilometer radius, and I don't know if you know this, but within 50 kilometer radius, we've got operating mines, we've got mineral processing facilities, we've got over 350 companies that service the industry, you know, we've got academic institutions, we've got research institutions all concentrated in this hub. And and we know that the future of mining in, in, in on Earth is, is remote and deep, and we also know that the future for mining is space mining. So we think that our region has types of companies, you know, that can be used uh, to maybe branch off into creating the, the different components that are going to be required for space mining. You know, e even if those companies need to set up their offices in space, you know, simply because we know there's a big challenge in bringing any material into, into space uh, to do anything useful. Uh, so, I mean, I'm excited to be here. I'm, I'm looking for synergies between space mining and deep mining. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really looking to, to see how can we best leverage our existing underground mining resources with those space resources, with those requirements for space. Uh, so I thank you for having me here and I'm looking forward to being part of this panel. Great, thanks Charles, Some great perspective there. Uh, and next I'm gonna invite Holly to go ahead. Excellent, hello, thank you. Um, it's awesome to be part of these panels because you get to learn so much about uh, peers in your, in your industry and lateral industry, so that's great. Um, as Melissa mentioned, I'm, uh, my name's Holly. I've uh, been at MBA for 10 years, which is hard to imagine. I, uh, I joined MBA as, a, as an engineering student uh, when I was in university. And uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with MBA, MBA is uh, Canada's largest space company. And so uh, we actually just celebrated our 50th anniversary back in February. Um, we started out as a, as a startup, a tech startup on the West Coast in British Columbia. And uh, to our founders really wanted to create a company um, that would allow uh, Canadian engineers to stay at home in Canada and work on exciting projects that had to do with space. And so they created a company called MBA. Um, the, their first kind of initiative was ground stations. And so that was the idea that uh, as remote sensing satellites orbit the Earth, 
Uh, they take pictures of the Earth, and they need to transmit that data down to the ground to distribute uh, for people to use it on the ground. And so we started in the, in the ground station segment 50 years ago. Um, over time, in the, in the decades since then, MGA has grown up across Canada. So we now have uh, major sites in British Columbia, as well as Ontario, Quebec, uh, and Halifax. And uh, we employ approximately 1,900 people across, uh, across the country. And we've also grown up in, in our technology base, too. So from ground stations, uh, receiving that data, uh, we've uh, started to develop, over the, starting decades ago, uh, Earth observation satellites. Um, uh, beyond Earth observation satellites, we, we're also the, our facility in, in Montreal is the largest independent manufacturer of satellite components for communication satellites, so allowing uh, data to be transmitted around the world uh, via, via satellites. Um, I'm from the robotics group. I grew up with the robotics group in, in Brampton, which is known for the, the Canada Robotics. So my first placement as a, as a co-op student was working on the Canada One project, which was a dream job to get when you're uh, 19 years old. Um, and, uh, and so we had that, uh, over, the, over the past 50 years, we've had that, uh, that, uh, the, the opportunity to be involved in many significant uh, programs that have defined the Canadian space sector. Um, my image up here is kind of a collage of things I put together. Many people don't know, but Canada actually has a rich history in space technology. When we look at the far right image on the top right corner of a, of a conceptual space mining uh, spacecraft, it seems somewhat futuristic. Um, the idea of mining an asteroid and, and, uh, and bringing it back for use here on Earth seems decades and decades away. But many people don't know that Canada actually has a rich history in many of the technologies that will enable this type of mission. And so when we think about that mission and, and, and going to an asteroid and, uh, and uh, in, in, the, in the long term, um, we look at the history of what Canada has done in space. So Canada was actually the third country into space in 1962 with the launch of Galileo-1 satellite. Um, and then in the decades since then, we've managed to become world experts in areas such as on-orbit robotics. So Canada-1 uh, launched in 1981 with the space shuttle, flew over 90 missions on the space shuttle. Uh, retired in 2011 with the, with the space shuttle program, but then was was succeeded by Canada Arm 2 and Dexter, which are currently on orbit on the International Space Station today. Um, from Canada, we've been supporting uh, robotic missions for over 18 years on the International Space Station, and, and they perform activities daily, supporting astronauts, doing maintenance, uh, upkeeping the station to allow the, the life of the station to uh, exceed and, and allow the science to go on on the International Space Station. So that's one key area that uh, Canada has a, has a world-leading expertise in, that when you think about asteroid mining and the idea, the idea that it's likely going to be a robotic mission that perhaps goes there first, we have that world-leading expertise in the robotics as well as the operations, so planning the robotic operations, um, understanding the operational concepts and the robotic technologies that you need uh, to be able to do those types of activities. Um, other areas include sensors, so Canada has world-leading space sensors technology. Uh, both LIDAR and uh, optic sensors, as well as radar sensors. So as I mentioned before, uh, we have, we've had third, three generations of radar satellites that take images of the Earth and send the, those images down to the ground and distribute to uh, commercial and government uh, customers daily for purposes such as uh, natural disaster recovery or mining, for example, actually supporting terrestrial mining. Um, the idea of using radar imagery on a satellite can also be extrapolated to other objects and other, other bodies and planets, um, such as uh, Moon or Mars. Um, another type of sensor is a LIDAR. And so currently today, um, MDA, partnership with CSA, um, has, a, has an instrument called OLA, the Osiris-Rex laser altimeter, which is uh, 
currently orbiting, or not rendezvousing, I was guessing the appropriate term, with uh, an asteroid called Bennu. And uh, there's a screen grab there, which is a really neat color image of uh, the latest in the past week of, uh, of uh, the first 3D topographical map of the asteroid Bennu that's been taken from this Canadian instrument, OLA. And so the purpose of this is to create a map of the asteroid so the, the OSIRIS-REx uh, spacecraft can go and take a sample from the asteroid and bring it back to Earth. And so this is something that uh, we've developed in Canada and is flying right now and will return back to Earth in the coming years. And so when we think about space mining and, and perhaps it's many, many years away, uh, it's important to remember that uh, there's many technologies that Canada has developed over time, uh, including rovers on, on, the, on Mars, rovers and sensors and, and uh, different um, instruments that, that have been operational on Mars for more than 10 years. And so as we talk on this panel and talk throughout today, um, space mining is a, is a I would say, an adventure to be had, but Canada has a major role to play in that with all the technology development that we've had over the, the past 60 years. Great, thanks Holly. Uh, and that will switch from space industry perspective over to government perspective. Tim, over to you. It's still space perspective. Hi. Um, isn't this exciting? I mean, when you just take a step back and think about why we're here today. We have a group of people and a group of panelists and experts from around the country to talk about potentially one day taking a spacecraft to a body somewhere in outer space, identifying resources that are valuable to us, extracting them, processing them, and turning them into something that will take us even further out into the solar system. This, I mean, a few years ago would have sounded like science fiction, and so it, it, it seems even today that yes, okay, resource extraction and, and processing is, is years away, someday we'll do this. But I think that this week we've been reminded very clearly that someday happens. Um, we're now 60 years on from the first human in space. And I'm sure someone thought, well, someday we'll have a permanent human presence in space and we'll have people walking outside of spacecraft to go and fix cables and things like that. And just this week, we had Canadian astronaut David Saint-Jacques doing exactly that. A um, hundred years ago, we had black holes that were theoretically predicted. And I'm sure over the past hundred years, we have people saying, well, someday we'll be able to get a sense of what these things really look like and what their structures are. And just two days ago, having now seen this first image of a black hole. And so even though we're sitting here talking about resources that are someday we may be identifying and someday may be extracting and processing, I think that today's a really strong reminder that we need to be ready for that, we need to be prepared for that, and we need to understand what our role is going to be in that. And so that's why I'm really excited to be part of a panel like this today. And just thinking from a preparation standpoint, where does Canada need to be? What do we need to do? And how do we need to get ready for this? And so there's a couple of things, certainly from the space agency perspective, that I do want to get across. The first is that this isn't just a resource question. It's not just an industry question. Implicitly, this is fundamentally a science question, first and foremost. Any activities that we have in terms of prospecting, identifying, and extracting these, these resources is first and foremost a science question. I mean, anyone who knows me knows that I love science. I love it. And, and part of my job um, at the agency is to ensure that there are opportunities for Canadian scientists 
um, in space exploration. And so this is a great example about how understanding where these things are and, and how we're going to access them, we need the, the expertise of our academic community, uh, very concentrated and very focused on this question. And that's why it's so great to be at a place like CPSX where you've really taken that leadership role in coalescing the academic community and putting it together towards a thrust and building the types of people to ask the types of questions that we need to be asking. Um, secondly, uh, this is critical. We need to think about this. If we're thinking about going, pushing further and further out into the solar system, we're going to need to start doing things differently and thinking about things differently. And so in terms of identifying these resources and using them to support human exploration, whether a sustained presence on the moon or perhaps even Mars, um, identifying resources to turn into fuels to allow our spacecraft to go deeper and deeper into the solar system, these are the questions we need to be identifying now. We've done wonderfully over the past 50, 60 years of spaceflight. We understand where we're going, but there's so much more to do. And in order to get there, we need to be creative. And that's why a group like this and a discussion like this is, is so invigorating. And finally, in terms of being prepared to do this, um, as was highlighted by my colleague from NDA, the CSA has made several investments over the past number of years in terms of trying to prepare both our industrial and our scientific community for these challenges. So in terms of the sensors that are going to be needed um, to identify the resources, um, the mobility systems that will deliver us to them, and the extraction systems that potentially could, um, um, could bring them out, and uh, of course our science community as well getting ready to do this, um, it's, it's a tremendously fun challenge, it's an interesting challenge, it's a challenging challenge, but um, I think we're all up for it, so it's a really exciting time. Great, thanks, Tim. And finally, I will pass it over to Neil for five opening remarks. Uh, so, one of the benefits of uh, having the moderator as your former PhD student is you get to ask to go last, and I, I did that. I did that on purpose. I'd like to thank uh, the organizers for inviting me to be on this panel. However, I have absolutely no knowledge about space mining at all. So I'm really not an expert on that. I am a, a little bit of knowledgeable about uh, mining uh, on Earth. Uh, I do think, though, that the reason why I was invited to be on this panel is I have strong opinions. And my opinions may be contrary to some of the opinions uh, on, on this panel. And, and so I want to tell you a little story. So I, I've been doing a little bit of research. And this is the, the bulk sum of the research that I've done in space mining. And, and I've shown this picture here. Uh, and this picture uh, is from a very small village on the uh, southwest coast of Greenland. Can you uh, advance a little more, please? And this is the only example of a mine or a mineral that has gone extinct, quote unquote extinct. And this is the mineral cryolite. Uh, it is a sodium aluminum uh, fluoride mineral. Uh, and it was discovered in uh, 1806 by a Danish mineralogist and chemist. Um, the mine opened in 1856. It was used uh, in the making of caustic sodas. There was a factory. It was shipped over to Denmark, and the factory was opened up in Copenhagen. Um, and then around, um, I think it was uh, 1886, the U.S. and French scientists discovered that it could be used in the manufacture of aluminum. Um, manufacture of aluminum had already been discovered back in 1826, but it required temperatures up to 2,000 degrees to actually take the bauxite ore and convert it into aluminum. Using this mineral as a flux, you were able to decrease the temperature by 1,000 degrees. So this mineral was incredibly useful for the manufacture of aluminum. 
However, back in 1886, there really actually wasn't much use for aluminum. That probably sounds surprising, but it wasn't until the First World War when uh, aviation really was taking off, pun intended, uh, that uh, aluminum really came into its own. And so at that time, um, the Danish government was taking a small tax on the production of cryolite from this mine from Greenland. And uh, by the time of the Second World War, uh, they actually had enough from that to buy half of the company. And they continued to produce cryolite from this mine until 1987, at which point the mine was uh, depleted and there was no more cryolite. During that period of time, this was the only cryolite mine in the entire world. And it, there's never been another cryolite mine. That doesn't mean that cryolite doesn't exist in other places. It certainly does. In fact, we have cryolite in Quebec. It's associated with alkaline intrusive uh, complexes. But in the interim, we actually developed technology to be able to develop this flux industrially. We don't need to actually use this material as a raw material to be able to uh, smelt uh, aluminum. Um, so basically, the fact that this mineral was able to decrease the temperature which was required to produce aluminum is the reason why this mineral was, was so, so important. I highlight this because one of the reasons people like to highlight space mining is because they suggest that we are running out of resources. This is the only example of where a resource has run out. And the reality is it didn't actually run out. It just got uh, supplanted by another uh, resource which we now manufacture commercially. The reality in terms of mineral exploration is we've only actually looked at about the top 100 to 200 meters of the Earth's surfaces in most places. There are many deep mines, I recognize that, but there are many mineral resources to be had on the Earth. Uh, I'm very excited about the idea of space mining, but when I read, uh, so I went to, is it Space Resources? I can't remember the, one of the companies that's gonna bring a platinum group element asteroid back to Earth. When I read about this, the value that they put on this asteroid is in the quintillions, I think it is. Um, that's totally true if you take the current price of platinum group elements. But if you were to bring that much platinum group element to the Earth, the price would immediately drop and it would no longer have that value. So um, I just uh, felt that uh, on this panel, because I know nothing about space mining, I could offer a slightly different opinion. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm not excited about technologies. Uh, one of the things I would say in terms of the opportunities uh, is what's, what space in my research uh, has been able to bring is a forward-looking opportunity that the mining industry doesn't always have. The mining industry is very risk-averse, uh, and they're, they're not often interested in looking at some type of new technology, but when it can be proved in, a, in an exciting and new way, like it can be done in space, then I think that that is a way to open the eyes to the mining industry of what technology may actually lurk out there. So, thank you. Great. Thanks, Neil, for bringing the controversy. <laughs> Thank you to you all uh, for your opening statement. So we uh, were, uh, that was great, but we do only have 20 minutes left for questions, so I'm going to get right to the first one. Uh, and I'm going to invite Michael Winter to be uh, the first one to answer this. We'll go in the same order. Um, so given that there are any commercial lunar missions two years from now, sort of the dawn of uh, commercial lunar exploration is very exciting. Um, so we're going to see a minimum of about 10 payloads going to the lunar surface per year. What niche Canadian technologies or abilities or skills should we invest in now to set ourselves up as experts and leaders in this field? 
and or what are the critical first steps towards this goal that industry, government, and or academia need to take? All right, well, I'm also not that concerned with technology here. Uh, I focus being on the legal and regulatory environment. So I'm going to cheat a little bit points to Canada's recent space strategy. So exploration, imagination, innovation. Uh, it's something that they've already recognized that they need to review the regulatory environments and in particular, especially when we've got commercial actors in the presence, we've got to consider, you know, competitiveness of our legal environments compared to the U.S. and Luxembourg. And basically, we need to make sure we're primed. Our regulatory environment is basically uh, an incentivized environment for private actors to actually operate in. So I think it's one of the areas that we've got to review what we currently have and make changes to get to that point. Okay, great, thank you. Um, and I will ask the same question of Michael. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I spoke a bit about the CMMP um, to act as an enabler of bringing together all the various uh, pieces of the knowledge uh, networks in Canada. I think, um, you know, Canada has a great long history of uh, academics, uh, government scientists, provincial, territorial, and federal, uh, and industry all working uh, collaboratively, collectively to address uh, problems going forward and provide opportunities for training and cross-training. Um, the, uh, the pieces that are, are there, there's a technological and a scientific piece that's been spoken about uh, quite extensively here, and I think that there's a lot of cross-fertilization that can take place, especially with the resource extraction industry in Canada, which I put at uh, among the best, if not the best in the world, and there's an ecosystem there that you can take advantage of. There is a regulatory framework that also needs to be developed. Uh, talked, uh, Michael talked about that a, a little bit, and, and uh, government, quite honestly, the federal government is still sorting out not only what that framework uh, and regulatory framework should look like, but also um, who, in particular, will take the lead on developing it. You know, there's various departments in, in Ottawa that all have pieces of this pie, and, and uh, somewhere you have to coalesce it down to a single type of um, uh, agreed-upon uh, framework that can be put into law and action by uh, the federal government. So, you know, CSA has a part of that, Natural Resources Canada has a part of that, uh, industry, science, and economic development has a part of it, just as the most obvious players. And um, and they all bring different perspectives to it. There are different, uh, different departments, there are different uh, mandates, and they bring those different mandates to the table. And some of them are somewhat competing, uh, to be honest. But I think it's all resolvable, and the conversation is now started, which is the important uh, part of this. So I'll leave it at that. Great. Thanks. Over to you, Charles. Okay, well, thank you for the question, folks. Um, I'll turn my mic off. It's better now. Yeah, thanks for, thank you for the question. I, I would say that, um, like, look, the, the federal government issued a competition recently called the Crush It, okay? And, and the reason for the Crush It competition was to try and encourage, you know, ideas that can reduce the amount of energy needed in communication. And, and communication is really just a fancy word of saying, you know, releasing the metal from the rock. 
in the most effective way possible. And and I think that you know if look if human beings are going to go on on the moon and do some neat work, um, then they there are technological requirements that need to be flushed out quickly enough so that you know when you do go there you can actually uh, do useful work. And and maybe just to clarify where I'm going with this is if you look at the mining cycle, okay, there's prospecting, exploration, there's you know construction of the mine site. Then there's you know the, the development work that you do, and then finally you know you have an operation that you're running, and you know you, you extract the resource, you know you, you get the value from the resource, and at the end of the day in mining there's something called closure, you know we actually close all the resource. So there's all these different components, and and all these different components have different technological requirements, and I think you know having a map of maybe what all those different technology requirements are going to be, and then. You know, asking you know the, the human intelligence engine to sort of start thinking about solutions to some of those those components is, is really critical uh, because you don't want to end up you know being on the moon ten times over you know not having some of these things thought out ahead of time and I think now is the time to start to do some of those things uh, we have existing companies that are in that are offering solutions that I think you know what all they need is just pivot a little bit all they need is pivot a few degrees to be able to start you know focusing on developing solutions that can be used in in um, in uh, on, 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 on the moon and and another piece I want to just maybe comment on as well is uh, advanced manufacturing you know their techniques to manufacture anything uh, to manufacture goods and services that are just more effective or more efficient and you know if, if you're going to plan to fabricate or manufacture anything on the, on the lunar surface you know you, you really need to get those advanced manufacturing techniques down pat while you're here on earth um, if, if you look at the amount of time it takes the amount of uh, uh, maybe the sequence of steps that it takes to to create maybe nickel, for example, or maybe to even to create you know the metal that's inside this this microphone, it's it's quite a long process. And then if you try and duplicate that process on the moon to create maybe a, a bolt or to create even a, a little nail, it's it's quite the process, right? So if you want to then you know sort of compress all this manufacturing and extraction of a resource to create metals into a very small unit. You need to start, start, start now thinking about how to do all that. And I think part of that is not even about space mining. It's about, you know, how do you extract value from, from Iraq the most effective way possible within the space that you have. Uh, today, we, 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 we ship, we ship uh, you know, product from Sudbury to somewhere in Europe, you know, to extract value from it and then bring it back. You know, as a product, and so if you imagine yourself, you know, you're out there stuck in space somewhere on the moon, and you want to create, uh, you want to fabricate with the metal. Just think through about what it takes to actually have the metal that you can actually work with. And I think that process is very complicated. And I think we need to start thinking about all these complex systems and processes now. And I think, like you know, like Mike Bellone was saying, you know, Canada already has an infrastructure here that can enable us to do some of those things. We just have to get everybody talking and get the networks, you know, collaboration happening in a more meaningful way. Great, thanks, Charles. Holly, same question to you. Okay, so I think when we look addressing the, the maybe the controversial, but not the controversial <laughs> point that uh, I think it's when we when we think about space mining, I think we all agree that we're in the very early stages, and there's probably years of discussion and investigation to really understand the, the value, the utility, and the how we would use or how space mining would appear in our lives in, in the decades to come. When we come back a little bit and look at a, a near
near-term implementation of, of what we call space mining. Um, the topic of in-situ resource utilization is a more uh, near-term uh, topic that I think we can talk about and get, our, and get our hands on. And this is the idea that in order to uh, travel to the moon and beyond, eventually onto Mars, which is where the International Space Agencies have their, have their sights set on, um, the idea of taking all of your fuel and all of your propellant and all of your resources with you uh, to those long journeys, eventually it doesn't, it doesn't make sense anymore. And so the, the, the idea of using resources uh, at your inter intermediate waypoints, uh, transferring ice water into hydrogen and oxygen, and perhaps utilizing that as uh, air debris for astronauts or, or propellant for your, your space vehicles to go further, I think that's more of a, a near-term vision that we can kind of set on the waypoint to, to space mining of an, of an asteroid and, and creating home uh, rare Earth metals. And so when we look at that near-term view of an in-situ in, uh, resource utilization, there are many key technologies, again, back to my point earlier, that Canada um, has, a, has a strong expertise in. And even better, there's a way for industry to line up those technologies with near-term commercial uh, opportunities. I think that's where uh, there's a good opportunity to, to develop technology, leverage the history that we have, um, with the eye of eventually implementing and applying those technologies onto in-situ resource utilization or space mining. So from an MDA perspective, uh, we're doing that in an area called uh, on-orbit servicing. And so when we think about satellites now, we launch satellites up, uh, traditional geostationary satellites are up there for 15 or 20 years. Uh, they eventually run out of fuel. And just like uh, when you're driving your car and you hopefully don't run out of fuel, but if you were to run out of fuel, you wouldn't just leave it on the side of the road and go buy a new car. You eventually gas up. We, we would uh, refuel the car and, and the, the, the duration of the car's life would be significantly extended. And so the idea of uh, on-orbit servicing satellites is, uh, it's been around for a few years, um, decades if you talk to some of my colleagues at, at MBA, um, but it's actually becoming a, a near-term business case in terms of uh, the value of actually going up and refueling these satellites that are potentially uh, fully capable and, and still fully functional, but are just running out of, out of um, propellant. And so the technology to refuel a satellite involves bringing uh, fuel up to, up to orbit, um, accessing a satellite with valves and caps and, and lock nuts that have never meant to be accessed before, doing all of this robotically, um, hooking up to a valve, transferring propellant, uh, making sure that there's a good seal, uh, closing the valve and, and, and uh, restoring the satellite to its original condition and then backing away. When you look at those functions and, and operations at a high level view, there's many similarities between what will be required to do that activity robotically and what would be required to perform an in-situ resource utilization activity um, at some of these future missions, potentially on the moon. And so I think if, if industry had the ability to uh, take advantage of near-term commercial opportunities to develop these technologies that we have here in Canada and our world leaders in, um, then we can develop those technologies for commercial purposes with the eye of eventually applying them uh, when ISRU technologies or eventually space mining opportunities become a reality. Great, thanks, Holly. Uh, Tim, your turn. Okay. Um, I think, honestly, the biggest challenge we have immediately is setting a clear objective. Uh, the topic of ISRU is incredibly broad. Um, there are so many elements to the science, to the technology, to the prospecting, to the extraction, to the processing. And as a Canadian community, um, I don't think we have to do everything. I don't think we need to do everything. This is an international venture 
by definition. And so the question I have for Canada is where do we want to be in this process? What do we want our, our key contributions to be? And so identifying specifically where we, where we need Canada to be, identifying where our niches can be, and then focusing on those. Um, so in terms of the technologies, um, I, I won't give you a specific answer in terms of the technologies that we need to develop in the short term um, before we set that clear objective. But what I will say is when we do set that objective, I think what we need to do is have that sort of over the horizon look, but understanding how the technology developments we're investing in today also help today. So whether it's terrestrial spin-offs or whether it's immediate um, increases in efficiencies for terrestrial communities or terrestrial companies, I think that's the types of that's the approach we need to take. So certainly having that long-term vision and that flag post that we're that we're aiming for, but understanding how the steps along the way will help us while we're going. Great, thanks, Tim. And last but not least, Neil. Okay, so um, in terms of where we should invest, I think it actually is not necessarily a technology, but is in people. And uh, I'm being a little self-serving here because I'm a professor at a university, but I think young people are going to be the answer to this uh, this question. Um, I think we need diversity of thought. Uh, and through that diversity of thought, we will get creativity, and that creativity will lead to the innovation. So the innovation is not in a piece of machinery or a piece of hardware or software. I think the innovation is in the creative outlook from young people who are given great training, supported by government and academia, and by industry. Those three uh, sort of pillars coming together to lead to uh, uh, an inclusive environment where we can have diversity of thought. I think that's where we need to invest. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Space Cube podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcast or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode if you send me a comment by email i'll write back to you as soon as i can on twitter you can follow us at canada in space and if you use facebook you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page the space Q. if you like the show please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app